Welcome to Women at the Table. I'm your host, Karen King. Today, we're going to be discussing intimate partner violence or domestic violence as it is more commonly referred to. According to the CDC, a woman is beaten every nine seconds in this country. It is the number one cause of injury to American women. Of the two million injured annually, more than half a million of those injuries require medical attention, while about 140 5,000 require overnight hospitalization. Spouses are also the leading cause of death for pregnant women in the United States. And here in Erie County in 2019, we experienced a record high number of 14 DV related deaths. I'm joined by the director of the Family Violence and Women's Rights Clinic at the University at Buffalo, Professor Judith Olin and three of her law students. The Family Violence and Women's Rights Clinic is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. In 1992, the clinic was created and founded by then co-directors Suzanne Tompkins and Dr. Catherine Cerulli. The late Professor Isabel Marcus offered a substantial support and input during the formation of the clinic. In the early years, the clinic helped to lay the groundwork towards the establishment of an infrastructure which created and supported domestic violence community collaborations in Western New York. In 2015, the clinic was restructured to a model in which students enrolled in the clinic became certified to practice law under the supervision of clinical professor Judith Olin. Students also have had the opportunity to work on projects with, which impact the local community, including delivering teen dating violence prevention education to high schoolers, the preparation of self-help pamphlets for survivors and the provision of community legal education for DV service providers. Students work closely with the staff from the Family Justice Center of Erie County and other victims serving domestic violence organizations who refer cases for legal representation. Welcome Judith Olin. Uh, of course, as I mentioned, she's the director of the Family Violence and Women's Rights Law Clinic. Her legal career has been dedicated to advocacy on behalf of victims of family violence. In her years as a legal services attorney, she focused on the representation of victims of domestic violence in divorce and child custody cases and initiated impact litigation, leading to reform in the Buffalo Police Department's policies in domestic violence cases. Olin went on to become an Erie County prosecutor specializing in domestic violence, child abuse, and sexual assault cases. We are also joined today by um, three of her students, two very recent graduates and one third year law student. Julia Morante is a third year law student at the university. She has practiced in the Family Violence and Women's Rights Clinic for two semesters. There she represents clients in custody and support matters, composes and argues emergency family offense petitions, spearheads collaborative efforts with local advocacy groups and researches pressing issues in New York family law. Outside of her legal interests, Morante is an award-winning poet and essayist. In this capacity, she writes about womanhood, gender disparities, and women's loss of autonomy over their own anatomy. Morante's most beloved work is a chapbook she published in the summer of 2019 entitled The Morse Code Project, as all of the proceeds were donated to organizations supporting women and their fight for equity. Morante plans to use her passion and skills to continue uplifting women's stories as a lawyer and otherwise. Lizzie Vinyl is a recent grad of the UB Law School who is currently studying for the bar exam in July. While she does not have a job lined up yet, her dream job 
would be working in a public interest organization doing family law for domestic violence survivors. During law school, Lizzie was a student attorney in the Family Violence and Women's Rights Clinic all four semesters. She was the president of the Domestic Violence Task Force and the fundraising chair of the Buffalo Public Interest Law Program. And our third student, Ashley Love, has just earned her Juris Doctorate from the University at Buffalo with a concentration in family law. While at the law school, she was the executive publication editor with the Buffalo Law Review, a writing fellow for the first year students and a student attorney with the Family Violence and Women's Rights Clinic for semesters. She also interned with Neighborhood Legal Services, volunteered with Law Help New York and completed a judicial internship with the Erie County Family Court through the New York chapter of the National Association of Women Judges. Welcome, all of you. An impressive lineup, I must say. It's an honor to have all of you uh, with me today at Women at the Table. And congratulations to, to Ashley and, and Lizzie on your very recent graduation from law school. So welcome. We're going to talk about the status of intimate partner violence through the lens of the courts, talk about what's changed, you know, what hasn't, what barriers are still in place that regrettably keep this dreadful occurrence intact in our culture. And I'd like to start with you, Judith, if you could please share with us a little bit more about the role that the clinic plays in our larger community. So during the uh, outset of the pandemic, we saw a big uptick in the request for emergency orders of protection from family court. So the clinic became um, certified to file emergency petitions using a special electronic application. And in so doing, we worked very closely with neighborhood legal services and the Family Justice Center. We saw a big uptick in requests for emergency orders of protection during the pandemic and especially in the beginning. We also try to, again, represent clients who would otherwise go unrepresented. So we have accepted referrals from neighborhood legal services when they were maxed out on the number of cases they were able to take. So we very much value our community partners and we want the law clinic to complement the great work that's already being done on behalf of intimate partner survivors in Erie County. So you're really filling quite an important need in the community, as well as giving budding attorneys an incredible opportunity to do real work in the court system. Yes, we see it as a win-win situation. Our student attorneys, we say they practice law in slow motion. They have a few cases. They're, they're very closely supervised by me, and I have two assistants, uh, Kelly O'Mell and Nicole Grasso, who work with me. So they're very closely supervised, and this really benefits them when they get out to be actual attorneys, because so many of the things they've already done in clinic, they're going to be doing once they're attorneys, and they're going to be able to hit the ground running. And for the clients, the students are often similar in age to some of the clients. 
And the clients really seem to enjoy um, working with young student attorneys. They can relate to them. So we really do see it very much as a win-win, win for the client and win for the student attorney. And it's also a win for the profession because so student attorneys are emerging and able to really make quite an impact, I think, on the practice of domestic violence and family law. Is this a popular trend or is the university at Buffalo one of few that offers this type of opportunity to its law students? So domestic violence law clinics really popped up a lot in the 1990s, but we are the longest running domestic violence specific law clinic in New York State, uh, just having celebrated our 30th anniversary, as you mentioned, with a major conference where we had over 100 people attend, talking about issues like the effect of COVID on working with DV survivors, working with underrepresented populations. So interestingly, some of the other law schools no longer have family violence clinics. They have sort of transformed into different sorts of family law related clinics that aren't specifically about domestic violence. But I'm very proud that our clinic has continued its focus on this issue, which is so critical, as you indicated with the statistics. And I hope that the next 30 years, uh, we continue this work because there's a lot of work to be done in this in this area. I'll say, <laughs> indeed, because those statistics are, are sobering and, and they really haven't changed that significantly over the years. So let me then ask our students and former students, um, Ashley, Lizzie, and Julia, um, please share your thoughts on the current state of intimate partner violence DV in the courts and talk a little bit about the areas where you think we've made progress and then the areas where we seem to be stalled. Julia, I'll start with you. Sounds good. I think in terms of progress, specifically there's a generational gap. And typically, domestic violence was always seen as physical. It was always seen as slapping or hitting or pushing. And I think that there's been a lot of progress in the media and also on micro levels, such as the school of Buffalo specifically, as Professor Owen articulated, that our clinic has been the longest running in New York State. And we have such an incredible group there in addition to other task forces that exist, which um, Lizzie Vinyl also on this podcast today was able to spearhead. And that's another group on the micro level that is making progress to disseminate the information that domestic violence is so much more than physical. It's about maintaining control. It's emotional. It's manipulative. It's financial. There are so many different ways to enact domestic violence. And I think that is a huge area of progress because it's no longer seen as just physical violence. However, I think it has been stalled in a variety of ways, including a gender disparity between men and women. This is very much seen as a gendered issue. And sometimes I think that's appropriate. And other times I don't think it is because statistically men and women, they suffer domestic abuse almost at the same statistics, but in very different ways. And it's not a female issue and a male issue. It's a human issue. And so I think that's where a lot of this stalling has occurred. And primarily the, the most recent example I can think of is at our conference, which was a few months ago, I was able to do a poetry reading there and there was only a handful of men and one of the men, and he happened to be 
the IT guy came up to me after and told me how beautiful it was. And he was in tears listening to these stories. And he asked me, where are all the men? Where are all of the men who need to hear these stories, hear your words? This brought me to tears. I'm here because, you know, I have to be, I'm the IT guy, but where are all of the other males? So I think that that is a huge area that needs improvement because it's not a female problem. It's not a gendered issue in this way. It is a human issue that everyone needs to be involved with. But I do think there's been some progress in terms of the types of violence that, that exist. So that, that would be, I think, the push forward, but the pullback that exists in this area right now. Okay, thank you. Lizzie, let's hear from you. What, what's your take on that? I definitely agree with Julia that there has been a increase in awareness and discussion of the issue of domestic violence. And it seems more people are agreeing and talking about the fact that this is not just a woman's issue, like Julia so beautifully said it's a human issue. The problem that I'm, I guess, interacting with a little bit more is that there has been so much progress in this area and things have gotten a lot better courts have a lot better understanding and they legally have to take in domestic violence into account in certain instances and often do. And flip side of that is unfortunately that there seems to be a stalling of change that's happening. So some courts might take almost for granted the training that they're getting and don't always internalize it as much as they should because they are getting so much training about domestic violence. There seems to be a stalling in the safety precautions that courts are taking because unfortunately domestic violence is in almost I think every single court and everything from criminal court to family court uh, supreme court where divorces are heard and then in the town and village courts where the misdemeanors are heard so one of the ways that the family violence clinic is looking at that is through the court watch program where we are eventually once people are backing the courts are having people go in to watch the courts, look at what does the parking lot look like, where is the security guard, how is domestic violence being communicated to the court and from the court, how are order protection being explained, uh, what safety precautions are in place in the courts. And I think that that will be a big eye-opener for a lot of people who have kind of been sitting on their laurels for a while that we've done enough so far. But I think there's a lot more that needs to be done. Yeah, you bring up a very important point because the actual act of going to court shouldn't be additionally dangerous or life-threatening once you've made that decision to move forward, a victim. So yes, that's that's a really important point. Um, Ashley, your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I would uh, echo what Lizzie and Julia have talked about, um, that although some progress has been made, there's definitely stalling in other areas that could still be addressed. Uh, one of the areas that the clinic has looked into, apart from the court watch program, is also the intersection of domestic violence and child welfare. Often we'll see child neglect or abuse coinciding with instances of domestic violence in the family. And often, unfortunately, victims are still being punished, essentially, for being victims of domestic violence. Um, in particular, we've looked at the prevalence of mandated reporters reporting victims for child neglect, particularly just because they're victims. And then as a result, there's collateral consequences to that. It impacts a victim's ability to 
get future employment, obtain financial independence from an abuser. Um, it could impact her outcomes in different court cases, uh, such as a custody hearing, um, because the court is going to consider those reports. And so one of the, the focus areas that the clinic has done is to provide education to different organizations about that issue in an attempt to try to move forward in that area and limit the impacts to victims when Child Protective Services does become involved because they're reported by mandated reporters. Um, so it's definitely one of the areas that has improved over the years. Um, there's a, a court case that was decided in 2004 that addressed this issue specifically, um, and a lot of improvement was made after that decision. Uh, it was Nicholson v. Scapetta. But since then, there's still a lot of work to be done, and it, it's definitely still happening, and it's still impacting victims. Thank you. Um, and, and Judith, I'm going to ask you to just provide some context here since you've got a lot of context to provide, but it, it almost feels or seems like the court system has not caught up with the cultural components and the factors impacting intimate partner violence. And I, and I know the courts are structured in, in, in hierarchical ways and, and, and aren't really designed to embrace change quickly, but what are the stumbling blocks in terms of making the system more just for victims and survivors, Judith? So we have some specialized courts in Erie County, um, our integrated domestic violence court, our specialized domestic violence courts. And I think they're doing a really good job of being very responsive to victims. For example, the Buffalo City Court Domestic Violence Court has advocates stationed there, as does the Integrated Domestic Violence Court in Supreme Court. So I feel like the IDV Integrated Domestic Violence Court and the Specialized Domestic Violence Courts, which started in the 1990s and the early 2000s, that those have been really good innovations. But there are little, quote unquote, you know, cases all over the town and village courts. Erie County has many different uh, courts like this. And we've heard stories about a victim and her advocate after court being attacked by the offender's family member. And there was no court escort available to take them to the car. I mean, we've heard stories about victims being verbally threatened in a court waiting room by an abuser. And then it turns out that there was no cl closed circuit television on to monitor so that that could have been something that was taken into consideration. And it's very, survivors often feel like um, they're not believed and and they they still do to some extent. A again, I think that things have gotten better. The other thing I think we're looking at too, though, is with the critique on mass incarceration and the disproportionality, particularly of African-American men in jail, I think people, some people are also thinking about looking at alternatives to that system because it, it hasn't been just and it hasn't been fair and that some female victims of color don't feel comfortable using the traditional police response because of police brutality against people of color um, in Buffalo and Erie County. So that's another aspect to this. And there, it appears to me that there has been a more of an intensive effort to create culturally responsive services for victims. For example, 
we have an awesome uh, organization called Rahma in our community that works primarily with Muslim um, American women because a lot of their needs are very different. For example, they wouldn't feel comfortable staying in a regular domestic violence shelter because of the dietary issues that foods that are served that, that they can't eat or that they need a place where they can pray five times a day and they don't feel that they have that cultural response. And I think we're going to see more of that. And I also think that the family court will be used more also by victims who are seeking orders of protection, but who don't want their abusive partners to be incarcerated. So that's another kind of lens that we're looking at now in the system. And I think it's good that there's been increased attention on that and that dialogue has started um, in that regard and looking at different kinds of culturally appropriate responses. And we see the same thing with the LGBTQ population who often doesn't feel comfortable going to the police because in the past police have harassed and been extremely insensitive to that population. And the domestic violence incidence in that population is high. So I do think the community is getting much better at awareness around these issues and providing culturally tailored responses. Wow, that's a lot. It's it's an all-encompassing issue. And, you know, Julia, you said something earlier about this being a human problem or a human issue. And I would further say human rights, uh, because we're really talking about the idea of an individual having autonomy and dominion over their own body and, and having the right to be safe. So it's encouraging to hear that the courts are, are trying to be responsive to the complexity of this problem. But Let's spend a little time talking about the cultural context. Of course, we're just still reeling from the the horrific murders, acts of terror that happened on May 14th here in in Buffalo. And we we seem to be a society that is entrenched in, in violence. Talk to me a little bit about the way the cultural context of violence and control have impacted the way we understand intimate partner violence and domestic violence and its relationship to these larger movements, you know, in particular white power terrorism and the proliferation of that currently. Why don't we start with Lizzie? Can you respond to that, please? Yes, I, it's my understanding, being someone who's not involved at all in these groups, but that with these certain hate groups that are spreading the white power and other uh, similar hate groups, one common thread has been violence and hatred of women specifically. And uh, most of the time when there are these brutal attacks, there is something else involved, be that the so-called incels or different groups that promote violence against women and uh, specifically physical and sexual violence against groups. And I think that it's very telling that that is a common thread among these hate groups and shows that the 
domestic violence and violence against women is so ingrained in these hate groups. Uh, domestic violence is often found in groups that there are these issues of hate and white supremacy. For example, police institutions where there is the commonly cited 40% of police officers have committed domestic abuse. And although the study has since been uh, taken down, it's very hard to find. That was a self-reported number which means that it stands to reason that the number would actually be higher than that. And that's a group that's been found to have a lot of violence and hatred in uh, those institutions. It seems as though the institutions and organizations and groups that have the most issue and have the most violence, there is a deep common thread of violence against women. Ashley, what are your thoughts on that? I think I would also kind of echo what Lizzie said, Um, particularly, I know the clinic has looked into police response to domestic violence. And so the prevalence of domestic violence among police officers, I think would be indicative again, of that same kind of culture of violence against women and that mindset um, among certain groups. So is this an issue about control when we think about this type of violence, Julia? Yes, I think absolutely. Domestic violence and violence at large comes in so many different forms, which we started to talk about at the beginning of of this session as well, that it's not just always physical. A lot of times it is, such as the massacre that happened last week here in Buffalo, but it doesn't always have to be because even if that massacre never occurred, the same intimidation, the same threat, the same white supremacy still would have been prevalent and is prevalent in our society today and is systemic in our society today. So whether that violence actually happens, as unfortunately it has many too many times, it doesn't always have to be. And it's not. It's consistent microaggressions against people of color or consistent microaggressions against women. And I think the reason that this control and desire for control and threat and intimidation and coercion has not been remedied is because there's a lack of focus on the problem itself or a lack of focus on the motive. There were individuals who said, you know, there were some white people who were shot in that incident too, but that's not the point. The point is that it was racially motivated and we can't look away from that. We can't ignore that. We need to address that and attempt to remedy it best we can head on, whether it be on the micro level of domestic violence in homes or on the macro level of in the community, in the state, in the country, a very racially charged problem and white supremacy that is ubiquitous throughout America. Judith, comments? Definitely. So the New York State Bar Journal in 2018 published a major report linking mass shooting to domestic violence. And I believe in over half of mass shooting incidents, they looked at seven years worth of research, there was domestic violence involved. I mean, the Sandy Hook killing, that gunman shot his mother first. 
and then went and shot the children at the elementary school. There was another case where I believe over 20 people were shot in a church by a man who was not supposed to have a gun and the background check never got entered into the system, but he had a history of violently attacking family members and thought his mother-in-law was going to be in the church that day. Thank God she wasn't, but over 20 other people were. So there is this insidious connection between mass shooting and, and domestic violence. And, you know, what do we do? We have some of the strongest gun laws in New York State here, but yet the 18-year-old mass murderer uh, did not have an extreme risk protection order against him because allegedly the threats that he made were not specific enough. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the issue of guns is it's such a loaded issue in America based on the Second Amendment and the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Second Amendment. But we know that the presence of guns increases the risk of a homicide. I think it's fourfold. So, and while, and again, I agree with Julia that there are certainly male victims as well, but when it comes to homicide victims, it's overwhelmingly domestic violence homicides are perpetrated on women. So it still is a gendered problem. And when we look at the incidence of ghost guns, which people can make and print off a 3D printer and they don't have serial numbers, so they're not detectable. We need to really do a much better job at regulating guns in America. And again, even in a, a, a state like New York, this 18-year-old was able to legally buy a gun even after he had made threats of harm, talked about wanting to do murder, suicide, and so forth. Right. And then let me just jump in here for a second, Judith, because you keep saying 18-year-old, but 18-year-old male. Yes. And I I think that's, you know, an important part that we recognize the gendered component that, that is still very prevalent in this discussion. And which I guess brings me back to this idea of the role patriarchy plays in this larger cultural context. And then, you know, how, I mean, the courts can't, can't rectify everything, right? But what do we do as a culture to try to create social change and that has an impact on, on the behavior? You know, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm curious to know what our young attorneys think about the role that, that patriarchy has played. And then really the overarching question of what role does intersectional feminist action play as we move forward and try to figure out ways to address these complex challenges. So I throw that question out to all of you who'd like to start. I can start with the idea of the patriarchy and how it is so systemic in our world today. And I think specifically with beginning to mitigate those effects, those very historical, deeply rooted effects in today's society starts with a lot of the language that we use to talk about people in general. When we say that a man is strategic, a female is instead calculated, or a male is confident, a woman is instead bossy, or a man is graceful, but a woman is weak. Like those differences in linguistics and those microaggressions seem so small But in reality, they have such an overarching effect and long-lasting impact on women and how they 
see themselves growing into a productive role in society. And women were once not allowed to have a job, or if they were going to have a job, it had to be a teacher or a nurse or something in that caretaking aspect. And now that's no longer required or regulated as much, but women certainly still gravitate towards those professions, sometimes subliminally because of this linguistic attitude that we address men and women as. And this is, again, a human issue that everyone needs to take accountability for and act change and educational programs to start mitigating this cycle of abuse and the words that we use to describe it. Okay, thank you. Um, Ashley, your background, you, you have a military background, which, you know, I know has been a fairly somewhat welcoming place to women and, and, and in some ways not, but it's still rather male dominated. What are your thoughts about this, the idea of patriarchy and, and power and, and how we have to reimagine the culture? Well, you had mentioned intersectional feminism, I think, in the original kind of when you posed the question. And I think I was going to talk a little bit about that. I think Mm -hmm. that idea is kind of shifting from, I think a lot of DV policy has been created and different efforts and initiatives have been made primarily focused on the experiences of white middle-class women. One of the the other research projects that we've kind of worked on within the clinic and other classes is the idea of the role of narrative in family offense petitions specifically, but in the bigger concept of telling people's stories and trying to include all people in that. And so I think that is kind of one way that we can maybe move forward and try to combat that patriarchy that you had mentioned and kind of focus on that intersectionality and trying to address issues from all perspectives. Thank you. Lizzie. I think the first step is admitting that we have a problem and really delving into what kind of problem our society has. As you said a little bit earlier, we are a very violent society and that's Uh, what we value as I think best exemplified by the budgets um, in our country and where we spend our national money. And that first step of acknowledging that we are uh, as a society perpetuating this violence by encouraging it in many ways and going off what Ashley said, talking about what kind of problem we have, that women all together have exorbitant rates of violence perpetuated against them, that it's often used as a joke or brushed off really lightly, and that women face violence, women of color face even more violence, and queer women of color face unbelievably high rates of violence. So actually talking about those issues and that this is facing all different walks of life and all different groups of people within this country, and that those violence look different and are perceived differently. I've seen firsthand with the cases that I've worked on that Black women are treated differently because they are assumed to have fought back more, talked back more than white women would in the same situation. And the courts sometimes don't view the violence perpetrated against them as bad because they were seen as fighting back, and which is completely false. That's why intersectional feminism is so important because just focusing on one group of people, usually middle-class or upper-class white women, ignores the huge breadth of problems that so many other communities face in this country. 
Thank you. We're almost out of time. So I, I want to just um, get a response from all of you. You're going to be out there in the world and practicing law. And what are your hopes? What are your dreams in terms of how you want to create some impact and, and change in the system? Ashley, I'll start with you. Sure. So uh, my goal um, is actually to practice in basically the exact same kind of arena that the clinic does. Um, so I'd like to serve domestic violence victims working in family court, potentially do uh, advocacy or academic type work. Um, and so I hope that I can just have uh, some small impact on even just one individual client. And I'd be pretty happy with that. But hopefully if we can work towards more awareness and more addressing, I guess, in the community or awareness of uh, domestic violence and the impact on victims and how we can better serve them through the legal process, uh, that would be my hope. Great. Julia. I completely agree with Ashley in those respects. And I think personally, I'm very benevolent to storytelling. And there's this quote that I love that's we we sing our songs for those who can't sing theirs. And to me, that means that those who can and do and love to share stories do that and sing their songs for those individuals who are scared to, to share their stories or don't know how or don't feel like they have a voice to do so. And so as an advocate in whatever capacity I, I end up working in when I'm older, whether that be practicing law, going into policy and research or scholarship or teaching or, or anything in between, I really want to engage with that constant act of translation and storytelling and employing empathy into the legal profession because so many times it's omitted. Lawyers are stereotypically very frigid and very stoic. And I don't think that that's an appropriate or, or productive image for attorneys. So attempting to reinstate that humanity into the profession in any way that I can through storytelling and empathizing with, with clients and professionals and peers, I think will be extremely imperative to transforming this profession and the work that we're able to complete. Right. Lizzie. My dream, like Ashley, is to be working for domestic violence victims and survivors specifically, and I guess preferably in family court. And I would also like to try to make real uh, policy change. One of my plans uh, before law school was to go into lobbying. So probably going back to that and spreading awareness about domestic violence and what we as people on the outside, so outside of the closed doors can do to help people who are facing domestic violence and to help so that less people are facing domestic violence. All very ambitious work. Professor Olin, uh, you, you must be very pleased. Uh, you are all incredibly impressive women, and, and I know you're going to, to do great work out there in the community, and I thank you for, for taking the charge on. I want to thank my guest, Judith. Uh, any final comments as, as we wrap up our conversation? I just want to say I'm extremely proud of all three women, um, and they all brought a really different talents and perspectives to the work. And I'm just so pleased that the struggle continues. I mean, we can go back to the 1960s and 70s, and I'm just happy that the work continues, that the passion for the work continues, and that 
we will work together to make things better, I'm sure. And having the next generation have those uh, values is very, very meaningful for someone my age. <laughs> Mine as well. But and, and you are to be commended for the incredible work that you are doing um, with the students and the clinic and, and the service you're providing to our community. So I wanna thank you all for, for joining me today and uh, just wishing you good things and to, to keep the faith, because I'm sure this work will continue to be challenging as you move forward. So thank you all for, for joining us today at Women at the Table. Thank you.